This podcast is brought to you by GE Forge and Tool. Forged from proprietary steel alloy, GE's tools are made to withstand the rigorous everyday work of professional farriers. GE professionals make their tools to ensure precision consistency day after day. Learn more at geforge.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. We often talk about the science and the art of farriery. The latter, that artistry, is often exercised through the devices farriers use to help keep horses moving. Of course, the knowledge and skill to do so is tied to the history of the blacksmithing tradition of this trade. And we see the ability and creativity through those farriers who are ornamental blacksmiths and other artists. One of those farriers whose creative work is known throughout the industry is Tom Willoughby. In this episode, we visited Tom in his shop to chat about his work in horseshoeing, forging, and drawing. Our conversation begins with Tom talking about his background with horses. Well, I always uh, liked horses. My brother liked horses more than me. He used to read them uh, Black Beauty books all the time, and I never read them. I did. If they didn't have a picture, I didn't want it. But my dad come from Oklahoma, Kansas, and uh, his dad was a cowboy, and uh, so was always intrigued by cowboys and horses. Started cleaning stalls when I was 15, 14. My dad had dropped me off, and I'd clean 15, 20 stalls in the morning, feed the horses, and then I'd catch the bus to school, and then they'd drop me off in front of the barn, and I'd clean the rest of them, and then I'd feed that evening. That's how I, and then I would watch blacksmith work there, and I always enjoyed it because they had coal forges in their trucks then, and he was a pretty handy guy. So I enjoyed watching him make horseshoes. That's what got me interested. Yeah. Where, where were you living at the time? Right over here, about 20 miles west of here in a place called Sock Village, Illinois. And uh, there was a lot of uh, horse barns around there. There was probably 500 horses within five square miles of that town. So there was a lot of farriers. So you had the interest. Did you go to horseshoeing school right away? No, sir. I went to the Marine Corps, got stationed in uh, El Toro, California, and I had a friend that was from Texas that was a bull rider. So I said, I'm going to go give that a whirl. You know, I was stubborn, hard-headed, and thought I was tough. So we went and I got on my first bull out there and fell off of it, of course. But then I thought, this is cool. I'm going to keep trying it. So I kept trying it. And then they shipped me to Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, just north of Philadelphia. And I thought, well, there's no bull riding around here. There's nothing like that, so I don't know what to do. So in the spring, I heard a advertisement for Cowtown Rodeo in Woodstown, New Jersey. Cowtown Rodeo is the oldest, longest-running rodeo in the United States to this day. But I didn't know that. And that said, you could come out and watch. So I went and watched. Make a long story short, I met a farrier there that was about two or three years older than me. And I was in the Marine Corps, and he and we became friends. He invited me to go to the racetrack with him because he was a plater at uh, Penn National. Of course, they always dare you and say, can you pull a shoe? And so I, I tried pulling a shoe, and I did the Elvis legs where they shake. <laughs> Of course, I was stubborn then, 
And then the next time I went, he says, I bet you can't pair a foot out. And so I said, give it here. Let's try it. And I, I have to say that he's the guy that started me shoeing horses. And we're still close friends. Who is it? His name's Frank Bean. He was the lead barrier out there at Penn National for many, many years. I think he started like in 72 shoeing horses. there. He's a good man, and I still love him. Did you start shoeing horses while you were in the Corps? Well, I would go help him occasionally. I'd hold, Mostly I was holding horses, which is the worst job in the world, you know. You hold a horse for a farrier, you think every time the horse swishes the tail, the farrier's going to get mad at you. So I always wanted the horse to stand still, but it grew from that where I would watch him and, and he would show me how to do certain things. And uh, then when I got out of the Marine Corps, I found out that uh, the VA would, I mean, the GI Bill would pay for school to go to shoeing school. So I went to Midwest Farrier School, and that's where I watched uh, uh, instructor forging horseshoes, and it, it just made me more interested in forging. What, when, when was that? In 1980, I think, 82, is when I graduated from shoeing school. Did you come back here at that point? Yep, yep. Um, uh, my father was ill, so I got married, and me and my wife stayed with my mom when, after my father passed. And before he passed, we just became, just began to shoe more and more horses, and it got pretty good. Uh, but I, I had met Roy Bloom when I was home on leave from the Marine Corps one time. And uh, me and him hit it off immediately because he's a guy that does all kind of stuff and he's not boring i don't like boring people <laughs> and uh so then of course i went back and seen him and then he asked me to ride along with him and we became real close friends and we worked for seven years together yeah what, what kind of horses were you doing well around here if you want to make a good living and stay close to home you got to be able to shoe about every kind of horse there is we did everything from draft horses to Morgan horses to, to thoroughbreds to standard breads, pacers and trotters, uh, dressage horses, jumpers. I did a lot of jumpers. Had a, a stint in there where I did hunter and jumpers for probably about sixteen years. Pretty much that's what I stuck with. But, but you, if you want to have a practice around here, especially starting off, you got to carry every shoe in your truck or know how to make every shoe in your truck. You knew a little bit about blacksmithing, and, and unless I'm wrong, Roy was a little more practiced back then. Oh, yeah, Roy Roy knew more than I did. He certainly did. We played real well off of one another. Roy is a very strategical, mathematical, scientific person. When, when I just run off the seat of my pants. But we together we created well. We... We worked real well because he could look at it a different way and I could look at it a different way. And together, we did a lot of cool stuff together we built. Had a lot of fun. We'd give us a chalkboard. We'd fill it up in a New York minute. What were some of like the early ideas that really stick out to you? Of <clears throat> we, we would shoe horses all day. While we were shoeing horses all day, we'd be thinking about what we were going to make that night in the shop. Roy was doing a lot of practicing for com competitions back then. 
And uh, so we would try to do at least one or two horses a week with handmade shoes, just to keep your chops up, you know. And then we would look at each other's work, and we would critique each other's work and say, well, maybe we should have done it like this, or maybe we should have done it like that. And it kept us sharp, you know. And we, we, we always tried to do a good job. In my opinion, I don't think I've shod too many horses that I was really, really happy with. That may not sound right, but I think every time I walked away from a horse, I said, I could have done this a little better. I could have done that a little better. That one nail kind of bothers me, you know. And I think if you lose that, I think you got to have the confidence, but I think you still have to have that conscious, conscious about your work. You got to know that maybe you could screw up a little bit. You might just mess up, so you better check it again. And that's what I did for 35 years. I did all right. I raised the children, paid off three houses. It's been said before, there's no such thing as the perfect shoeing job. I believe you're right. I think there's always something you can find and do a little bit better. Same thing when you're creating something, you're making something. I'm never happy with anything I ever build. I see it in my head, and if it don't come out the way it's in my head, then I'm kind of disgusted with it. That's what makes you try to do better. I, I never was much for competing because I was always thinking about working. I just wanted to make money and go, go to work. But I've always competed against myself. Even when I build stuff in the shop here, I, I'm competing. I say, you could do better than that. Come on. Come on. you, you got to give it a little more. And I, I think that's what makes I, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but I, I want my stuff to be good. And I hold my feet to the fire. If I got failures, I'll let everybody see them. I got them all over that wall right there. There's tools up there that I've made that I can't, but I, I hang them there and I look at them and go, yeah, that was a failure, but there's a thousand lessons in that failure. So I leave them so I can see them. I think a lot of, especially people who are senior work now, the artistic work, view you in that sense, the blacksmithing. How, how did that creativity translate to what you were doing with horses? I heard uh, Doug Butler say one time that you should learn how to draw a foot on a piece of paper. Maybe draw a foot with a long toe. Maybe draw a foot that's upright. Maybe draw a leg with a de deformity. And I think if you can learn to draw it, it helps you tremendously in, in the farrier field because if I, I'm, I, let's say I carve wood, and let's say I'm going to carve a cat's head. Well, I could look at a piece of wood, and then and this may sound really trivial, or you've heard it before, but I see the cat's head in that piece of wood. So I know i got to take this off and that off to get to that point. Though it's the same thing as if I look at a horse's foot, because I've trained my eye, or I was blessed with it. I was probably a little bit of both, but I could look at a foot and just about tell you where the coffin bone is inside it. And I've, I've done that several times, and many, many good farriers can do that. They could see that hoof capsule and just about on a piece of paper draw the hoof capsule and show where that coffin bone's at in there. And then the vet will take a picture of it and go, well, that's where it's at. Well, it's because you... You see it, and you, you know it, and of course it's, it helps to know anatomy and how things work inside that foot, but 
yes, I think being artistic helps you a lot when you're a farrier. And we were kind of talking about that earlier with horseshoeing today versus even you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's often looked at with modern terminology with that. Right. And, and we were talking your work with Roy and, and mm-hmm. Roy giving the, the 12 points yes. of balance and trimming. Yes. And, and that, that was, I think that's one of the areas where you have that artistic mind and you're seeing the footwear. I think we're all somewhat different. Right. We learn differently, and, and you're seeing things uh, from that, that removal point versus I need to follow this protocol. Right. You know, I've always been blessed that if I like something, then I try to be the very best at it. And if I wanted to be a horseshoer, then I looked at pictures of feet, and I listened to farriers, and I, and, and I look, and I, I'm like a sponge if I'm interested in something. If I'm not interested in something, I glaze over like a donut, and that's the way I sit there. I studied a lot of farriery, and my wife will tell you, I used to draw pictures of horses' feet constantly. 35 years ago, I would draw feet from the bottom, from the side, from the back, from the front. So I, I guess I have this image in my head of how this knee comes down, how the foot comes down. But a lot of guys don't, like you say, we all learn differently. I really don't know how I learn. I just, like I say, I, I absorb things. I used to hang around old guys whenever, any chance I got. I loved hanging around old guys because I always thought they know a lot. And a lot of them did. A lot of them were full of bull, but <laughs> a lot of them knew a lot of stuff, and, and you could learn from them. And then the more clinics you go to, the more you're going to learn. Even if he's not even that good of a clinician, you're still going to learn something. And so it, it usually when you go to a clinic and you come home, you're recharged. And you feel like, well, let's go give this a try. Let's just see what you And you'll, it'll either be successful or not. But learn real quick because you don't want to be on that road where it's not working because then you lose customers. That's always an interesting thing is separating the bull or being open-minded to new ideas. Yes. Yeah. You know, you're, when you go to a clinic and willing to try something versus oh, this is completely off. How, how did you balance appropriately skeptical and, and open-minded? I'll tell you a quick story. Me and Roy Bloom are sitting on the bleachers of a clinic. And uh, listen, I love making horseshoes myself. I love it. But a lot of times around here, when you had plenty of horses to do for the day and it's 95 degrees, we didn't make handmade shoes. We would put on keg shoes and modify them if we had to. Because let's face it, it's nothing more than a piece of steel. And if I have to put a nail hole a little somewhere different, I can do that because I'm a blacksmith. But we were sitting there one day and... Roy and me's watching this fella, and he was a good blacksmith. I can't remember his name, but I don't even know if Roy remembers his name, but I remember what Roy said. The, the guy said, I make my all my handmade shoes at home or at the horse, and he said I could stack them up three foot high and look down the nail holes to the bottom. And Roy hollered, I could do that with a, keg, a box of keg shoes that I got in my truck, too. <laughs> well... Yes, making handmade shoes is a great thing because it teaches you that. It teaches you your radius. It teaches you all these things that you got on that foot. But sometimes it's not practical 
time-related wise, and them keg shoes come in pretty handy so you get home and have supper. We still learned from that clinic because the guy was handy. He could turn a shoe and he could make a shoe, and we, I'm sure we learned something from him. But Roy, what Roy was trying to say is, I already got shoes like that. Why should I spend all my time making horseshoes when I got a box of them out there to do that? It's a balance. You should you should be able to make handmade shoes because it shows a master of your craft. I've seen good, great handmade jobs. I've seen great keg shoe jobs. I've seen lousy handmade jobs, and I've seen lousy keg shoe jobs. It always comes down to the mechanic that's putting them shoes on, what makes that job good. That's what I'm trying to say. It... So anyway, whether you're nailing on a piece of wood or iron or whatever you're doing, it comes down to the guy that's nailing it on. So to say one way is better, I don't know whether it's, they're both compatible as long as it's done right. Going back to what you're talking about, drawing drawing feet, mm -hmm. and that's, you know, maybe some guys had some experience with that. I, I don't know how many folks out there have training or Mm -hmm. What uh, what advice can you give for, for starting out with drawing? Well, I, I tell guys this that come in my shop. If you want to build something, I want you to draw it on a piece of paper. In a lot of the old blacksmith shops and farrier shops that were blacksmiths, a lot of times their first job, the thing they would make them do is draw whatever they were going to make. Because it proves that you've got a, an idea in your head and maybe somewhat of a road map. To complete your task. I would say to people, start out drawing stick figures. Just just start it out. You know, I'm going to go from here to here and learn it that way. You don't have to be a Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci, but you should be able to draw a half-ass rendering of a foot. And uh, that's what Doug Butler said years ago, and, and I I think it helps a lot. I've, I've seen a lot of guys that can't draw a lick and are great farriers, but they, uh, they worked and trained and worked and trained to get to that point. They forced themselves. A lot of times a, an artist can come in, a guy with a good eye, and he can learn it faster because he sees it. So you, I think you can train yourself to be able to see it if you draw it a lot, draw enough. I was subordinate in school. I got bad grades because I was drawing pictures all the time. So I sat by the window and I would draw pictures and the teacher would say, where are you at, Tom? I, I'm over here in my own world. What I used to get in trouble for, now they pay me to do. Can you, can you talk a little bit about where your ideas come from? I, I remember seeing a post, uh, and I, I don't have the words correct, probably exact, uh, from Facebook, but basically you're saying you, you don't, want to draw inspiration you don't like seeing other people's work you want your own creativity yeah. you don't want to be borrowing bits from anybody else you want your own own ideas that's what i try to do but i was told and and i a fellow hand me handed me a book i'll tell you who it was it was bob parks and it says there the book more or less is saying there's no original idea and it's i had i've been enlightened because if you look back a lot of things I've built, I, I've never seen somebody build it, but I've seen it somewhere. 
or seen, I've never seen maybe what I built, but I've seen something that spurred that idea to make a certain uh, sculpture or whatever. But yes, when I was writing songs, I didn't want to listen to the radio because I didn't want a song to get stuck in my head or a line and then spew it out later in a song that I wrote. So I, I always tried to keep my own ideas, and I've always been intrigued by hands. And of course, I'm, I'm a farrier and a blacksmith, so hands that are shoeing horses or making a horseshoe or whatever, that's my niche, you'd say. Now, some people call my sculptures macabre. I, I had one in, in the fair, and one lady said, that sculpture of yours is macabre. Well, I didn't have a phone to look it up on Google, <laughs> but I found out what it meant, and then I thought, well, that's a compliment. She's telling me them hands look real, you know, but they look like they're cut off somebody's body, but that's all right. I'll take that. My ideas, I don't know, I come up with ideas driving down the road in the shower. <laughs> it don't matter. I'll come up with an idea. I've still got a ton of ideas in my head for all kind of carvings, and I don't think I'll ever get them all done. A lot of times we're resist like I'm I'm kind of resistant a lot of times to to trying to really thinking out I guess what the cliche would be is thinking outside the box. So um you're resistant of it. Yeah, uh, it, okay. I think a lot of people can be. We'll see now that's the total difference of what I am. I think way out there in left field all the time. I always try to. And uh there's some things that are blatantly out obvious to people and it's just the old saying you can't see the forest for the trees but i've always thought out of the box i've never done anything conventional i didn't think in my life if i i learned to play guitar by sitting and watching a guy i sat across from him in church and he played a guitar and i watched his hands i didn't even know what chords i was hitting i just knew that that this, I knew what the G chord was, mm -hmm. but I I didn't know what chords I was hitting, but I learned it that way. And I could have probably learned to play guitar better, but all I wanted to do was strum a guitar and sing a song, because Johnny Cash just went like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I never really furthered that, but I give advice to young guys sometimes. Being a farrier, there's not 10 of them in Crown Point, Indiana. If you want to make money, do a job that nobody else wants to do, but everybody needs. Being a farrier, hey, you're a small community. I always wanted to be, so when I was a farrier and we'd go to a party, there'd be 50 people there. They'd say, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a banker. Well, I'm, I, I'm a carpenter. Nothing wrong with these things that people do. But boy, when they say, what do you do? I'm a horseshoer. And your chest swells up because you know there ain't no more there. Now everybody wants to talk to you. It's the same way with, uh, I've, t I've told people if I didn't chew horses, I think I would have got into 25, 30 years ago. And this is a job nobody wants to do, but they make money doing it. Somebody kills themselves or somebody got murdered somewhere. But nobody wants to clean that mess up. You can make a lot of money cleaning those messes up. I, I think I, I got into being a farrier because there wasn't a lot of people doing it, and it's a pretty cool title to say you're a horseshoer and you got an amble. 
long before Forged in Fire came around. Right. You talked about mistakes hanging on your wall. Do you, mm-hmm. do you remember any mistakes that really that stick out and uh, helped you move along or really changed the way you looked at stuff? Mistakes. And I got a bunch of them. I think it's more of a conglomeration of mistakes. Life is life is mistakes. It's what you do after the mistake that makes you what you are. You could lay there and say, well, I can't build a, a, a fuller, or I can't do this, or I can't do that. Or you can give it another go, and another go, and then go ask somebody that does know, and he'll give you that one little tip that'll make you like it for a fuller now. But I used to have trouble forging things that you had to punch a big eye out of, like like a fuller or a hammer, and it, you, that used to intimidate me. I'd say, I don't want to punch that out of there. I don't want to punch that out of there. But then you watch these get good guys punching stuff. You watch guys like Jim Poor, Roy Bloom, all these guys that could punch a hole through anything. You go, well, it ain't that flipping hard. So you go back at it, and you just keep, and then you go, I got it. There's a lot of things that don't come natural to me. Like, I can't swim worth a crap, but I, I, I could swim from here to that fence to save my life. But same thing in life. The one time I came here, I, I remember a conversation about mistakes. and it, it, Oh, it, yeah, I remember that too. In your music. Yeah. And uh, we, we were talking about it because you you're doing one of uh, the anvil vultures. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not, you know, th- this is talking about not necessarily the mechanics of mistakes, but letting it be part of your work. Mm-hmm. And you said, you know, there might just be something a little off about that vulture, but it becomes part of that story. Right. I was never really successful at songwriting. I could have been if I would have moved to Nashville. I think I could have been. Because it's like anything, you got to get to know people. and you got to have networks. And Chet Atkins said, he didn't tell me, but he wrote it once. He said, uh, Sometimes a mistake in a song can become a feature. In other words, there's songs that Waylon Jennings sang, and to this day people go, what's he saying in that song right there, right there in that line? Well, what makes that so interesting is, is everybody talks about that. So everybody will listen to that song over and over again. It's the same thing like in art, you could always... Fudge something. If you make a pretty good mistake, you could say, "Well, all right, now I got to use my creativity and say, all right, I'll turn it into this,' because you got forty hours in something. You don't want to go back and start forty hours again." But farriery is a total different world. That's science, so you got to keep that stuff pretty well square. But in in drawing a picture or something, I mean, that that carving over there, though, that one there worked on my brain because. I laid awake at night trying to make sure I got had that thing right, but I, there's only a couple things there that I don't like about it, but that one came out all right. But the one that you, you're talking about is one I made a lump on his head. Yeah. Yeah. Lump, lumpy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you could always make up a funny story after that. Right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, like you said, horseshoeing is a completely different yeah. thing. And, yeah. And, you know, going back to what you were saying before, there's... You can look back and say, I should have done this a little differently. Mm-hmm. But I have to imagine trying to go back and, number one, if you try to do the perfect job, um, and it's not saying that you cut corners or uh, you, 
you're neglecting your work. It's if you try to overanalyze everything, you're going to spend eight hours on a horse, and that's not good for you no, or the horse. No, but also things you might do to go back and you're taking away more foot, and it ends up being bad for the horse yes. anyway. Yes, sometimes you have to be happy with what you got. Uh, Bruce Daniels said this at a clinic one time when I was a young man. He said. You can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, but you can make a pretty good wallet. And it's stuck in my head for 30 years, and I still use it. It's a great saying. You had another good Bruce Daniels story earlier. You know, he was always somebody who's clinics, and I think probably every other podcast interview I do, his name comes up. Oh, sure. Uh, what, what, what did you take out of his clinics? I took that he, he always had try. He would always say, try to give each horse the most you can give it. And he was, uh, he was a tough man. And I, that's what I enjoyed about him, was, was he was tough. And I, I was always impressed by tough people. When you spend five years, six years in the Marine Corps, you're pretty impressed by tough people. And Bruce Daniels was one of those kind of guys that I just loved to listen to him talk. And he was a matter-of-fact kind of guy. And uh, I, that's why he was well-liked. And he's very handy. He was talented. He was an artist. He truly was. Who are some of the other guys besides Roy and Bruce that, that really had a big impact on you? Well, most of them would be people that most people don't know. Frank Beam, is, he, was the, he was the one that really made me fall in love with being a horseshoer. The guy in Pennsylvania that first brought me to the racetrack. And uh, his brother, who passed away was a great horseman. He could shoe horses, and he, he also floated teeth. He was a horse dentist, and I learned a lot from him how to do teeth. Don Warning was a... Now, Dan Hausman worked with Don Warning, too. Don Warning was an old guy. He started shoeing the day World War II ended. I learned a lot from Donald. Donald wasn't a very good man in the fire, but he was a very good horseman. So I learned a lot from him. Of course, you know, you learn from guys that are your same age or what do you call them? Your peers. Your peers. I always think of a boat when I say peer. But <laughs> you learn a lot from them just by talking. Many times you go to a clinic or then the symposium or to the convention. Some of the best little clinics or seminars, whatever they are called, or when you're sitting there drinking coffee with the guy outside the building in the cafe and you're talking about things that you see shoeing horses. Sometimes you learn so much just from doing that because you've got all these other farriers from all over the United States or somewhere. You learn so much just from talking to each other. And that's where I think you get a lot of your education is just listening to people. Or they'll tell you a little tip that they do when certain problems arise. So when you have those conversations and, and you talked about being in tune when something interests you, what, what are some of the things when you're with another horseshoer that you want to pick up from them? Where, where do you find a lot of value? I know prices, this has been talked about and argued and thrown back and forth for years, but we as farriers could really make more money if we all got on the same page about prices. There's always that one guy, and I know it's ag aggravating to a lot of guys, but there's always that one guy that's going to stay three bucks below you. If you raise your prices three bucks, he'll, he'll raise his three bucks and he'll stay right below you. 
I just never could understand that. I raised my prices when I thought I needed to raise my prices. I didn't look around to other farriers. You're going to always have that guy that trims a horse for 20 bucks. And then you're going to have that guy that trims one for 75 So you got this gamut. And yes, I understand that region kind of controls the cost of horseshoeing. But at wherever I'm at in a region, I want mine as, as close to being as the highest in that region. Because if you have confidence in yourself, then you, you can raise your prices. It's like the old, the old farrier told me, he says, I don't want to be known as the guy they, that you, they use because I'm the cheapest. I want them to know that I'm good. So I learned a lot from that. I mean, I, I never had the highest prices around here. I was always in the probably the top two-thirds or the top third or top quarter. I was way up there, but not the very highest, but I was up there. And I think that's a good place to be. It's not mediocre. You're up there in the upper echelon, but you're you're not pricing yourself where you got to drive a hundred miles to go shoe a horse. Because around here, when me and Roy shot horses here, like I say, we had barns where we only drew, drove in a five mile radius, and I could go eat lunch and go back to shoeing horses, and that was about every day. So there was a lot of horses around here, and we made. When, when I started, it was eight bucks a trim. I remember the first day me and Roy made $100 before noon. Then Roy goes, we made $100. Let's go eat lunch. <laughs> but I think pricing, and, and I don't think there could be a straight pricing across the board because everybody has different thoughts about how, what should, but you got to be able to cover your prices. You got to be able to cover the shoeing job and, and make money because that's what we're out here to do. Let's face it, your your first 10 years you're learning. The second 10 years you should be in the top of your game. That's where you're making the most money. You should be rolling in it and making as much money as you can because after the 20 years, then you begin to slow down again. So on your 30th year, years, you're just going down, you know, from 20 to 30. So in this game, pay for your house, man. Get your house paid off. That's, what, that's the only thing I really try to tell people is pay your house off. Because if you can pay your house off, it'll help you tremendously mentally, too. Mm -hmm. Lightens the burden. Did you always recognize that with rates? Because I, I'm wondering, sometimes there's always a struggle, and fairs will often talk about it, of when you do want to raise your prices, of introducing that to the owner. How, yeah. how, how are you successful? In, in well, I always had a, a price list. Me and Roy always had a price list. Uh, a lot of guys don't. And that's their opinion. They could do it whatever way they want. But we had the bigger barns, and we had a box there where they had to put their money in. And we would just put a price list up, and there it is. Read it and weep, you know. But it is hard to tell some people, hey, we got to jack it up five bucks, or we got to jack it up ten bucks, or whatever. But you got to realize you got to reward yourself as a farrier. One day, it was it was real hot summer, and this was probably 15 years ago. And every farrier that shoes a lot of horses, they in the middle of summer, it wears you down because you're running, you're, you're going constantly. So I was pretty well down and depressed. I'm driving down a country road, and I see the dust flying in front of me, gravel. And here come this old vet driving down through there, and I knew him. 
And uh, I stopped, and he stopped, and he rolled down his window. He says, hey, Tom, how you doing? I said, ah, I'm so tired of shoeing horses. I could quit tomorrow. And he goes, you know what you're doing wrong? I said, what's that? He said, give yourself a raise. That next day, I gave myself a raise. It made me happy again, <laughs> and I'm driving down the road happy. You have to, You have to keep yourself happy. If you... Ain't rewarding yourself, you won't want to go do those horses. You won't, because you're not rewarding yourself. You have to. It helps you mentally, it helps you physically, it does it all for you. Yeah, people say oh, you might drop a customer or two. Well, you're still making five bucks more, ten bucks more, or whatever. So lose a couple. You get you home and have a barbecue at night. Yeah, we talked about this kind of the same vein earlier. Uh, too many clients doing too much. Oh yeah, uh, and I, I think that's often a trap early on for a lot of guys. How how'd you get out of the mold? Like you said, you were shooing on oh, Christmas. Oh, the first ten years I shot every day. It was because I was afraid I wouldn't have no business. How did I get out of that? I finally listened to Roy, and he said, "Take Sunday off, take Saturday off," because he'd always say, "There they'll be there when you come home. Get go back on Monday." He said, "There'll be horses there." But you're, I was, I was, like I say, I get, when I get involved in something, I go all the way. And for them first 10 years, I was shooting horses every day. I did every lousy horse that came down the road. No wonder you lived through it. But it's the only way I could do it was I started listening to older farriers and other guys that had a little more sense than me. And they say, Tom, raise your prices, do this, that, that. And you start doing it. And then uh, you got to run your business. Don't let the business run you. That's the way I see it now. But sometimes even in this artist stuff, it I let it run me because sometimes you people want you to build something or, or to draw something, and and you don't have the motivation to do it right then and there. Next thing you know, you got five of them to do, and you, you can't tell them no, when really you probably should just say, I don't have the time. And sometimes that's what you got to do in Ferriery too, is just tell them people, I can't do your horse. Don't schedule them and not show up because that's the worst thing you could do for your reputation. Just tell them, no, I can't do it. I'm busy. Or raise your prices, lose some customers, and sign them up. You know, one way or the other. You'll still go out and uh, uh, help other farriers out, but uh, you talk a little bit about what happened with your back. and, and you're, you're not shooing horses on your own every no, day now. no. I just, farriers need to understand if you're having chronic pain and it's constant, go get it looked at because if, don't think it's a muscle, don't think it's this, that, or the other, go get it worked on because the longer you work something, you should know by working on horses' feet and working on horses that some things are degenerative. And if it's degenerative, that means it's not getting better. In other words, it won't generate. It'll degenerate. I worked with a, a back that was bad for eight or nine years and just kept going to the doctor, and they'd give you anti-inflammatories, burn your nerves, when in fact I, I was just a, almost out of a cartilage whatsoever, and, and it was sitting on my sciatic nerve. But... You got to keep your body in shape because you're the best tool in the truck. 
you have to take care of that. Now, you can go to some doctors and they'll say there's nothing you can do. Then you go find another one that says they can, and then you might think he's a quack trying to just cut you open. But these are all things you got to weigh, but you got to take care of yourself physically. If, if you don't, I don't care how many pairs of GE nippers you got in your truck, they can't nip that foot unless you get got a hold of them. That Roy Bloom hammer ain't going to work unless you got a hold of it. So you got to take care of your number one tool, which is you. And wear some stuff over your eyes when you're grinding. And I know you may look like some of them glasses make you look stupid, but you you got to take care of your eyeballs, man. Because without your eyeballs, you can't do nothing. Now, the hearing don't really matter that much. <laughs> because sometimes you may not want to hear something. But the eyeballs are most important. Uh, we're, we're here in your shop. And um, there, there's people who are listening that, that are interested in the, the blacksmithing element. They might be getting ready for certification. Whatever it is, they, you know, they need to develop skills mm-hmm. at the, the anvil whether they're using keg shoes or not. Right, exactly. Um, what, what advice do you have for, for making the most out of it? Because we're all busy. How can right. you make the most out of your time outside of the work in, in the shop? The thing is about creative forging, there's tolerances in blacksmithing. Like if you're going to build a gate, there's things that you've got to keep the tolerances correct or something. But in farriery, when you're making a horseshoe, it has to be correct. It has to be, it has guidelines, and uh, every shoe has to be correct, whether you're building this kind of shoe or that kind of shoe. And there's some guidelines that are that are more or less written in stone, is how you're going to fit that into the white line and, and fit it to the foot correctly. A lot of guys, they're practicing for whatever certification they're wanting to take. You need to do things repetitiously. Roy told me this. 30 years ago, he says, you got to do it 20 times in a row correctly, and you'll have it in your head after that. Well, I've stuck to that, too, 20 times in a row. So now think about that if you're, if you're trying to make a heel caulk. Well, now you got one right. Now I'm going to do another one right. Oh, crap, I just screwed up the third. Now you throw that in the pile. you got three in the pile now. Okay, now we start again. Oh, you did four, and I screwed up on the fifth. Now you got more to the pile. So, in other words, to do it 20 times correctly, you're going to spend a lot of time learning to do it. In other words, you got to spend your time at that amble and at that ford and practicing certain moves like fullering or uh, turning the front shoe, turning the hind shoe. You, you do it where I don't know it's it's not muscle it might be muscle memory it might be a mental memory or whatever you call that but you just you go through those steps to where you can get it all correct but in in creative forging I always tell guys if they're practicing so much making horseshoes that they they say I just can't I can't get that one move to make this or can't get that I say then leave it alone tonight and go out there and forge a mouse. Go out there and forge something else. Something that you could be free with. In other words, if you mess it up, it really don't matter. And just be free with it. And then come back the next night, and I'll bet you it'll help you make that heel call. And it really does. Because it lets you, you'll learn stuff from making a mouse. 
you go, oh, I could do that in a shoe. I could use this. I could use that. So it's it works hand in hand. You don't have to just constantly be forging correct shoes. Enjoy yourself with that hammer too. You know, I mean, I enjoyed making horseshoes, but I got to the point where I, I got tired of making horseshoes. So I just make other stuff. So I'd take horseshoes and make something out of a horseshoe. I I hope that helps you. Yeah, something something you told me a couple years ago that stuck with me too. It might have been a lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> About being in the shop and uh, uh, keeping everything organized. Oh yes. Uh, you know, not simply just uh, a reason for cleanliness, but it hunting for your tools you is bet. disruptive to your creativity. You better believe it. And it's the same way at making horseshoes. Keep your stuff squared away. My shop's a little bit of strew right now. Because we had a party in here, and now we got a hobo cat that lives in here. But uh, if you got your stuff squared away, and you got all your, your tongs where, you, where they're supposed to be, your punches where they're supposed to be. So when you come out here, and you say, well, I'm going to build a sign hanger. And I'll need this, this, and this, and this to do it. I know I could go right to it and go to work. If you can't, get, if you got to spend 20, 30 minutes looking for it and calling your wife so she could bring her uterus into your shop so she could turn on the radar and find your tool, it screws you up. So you got to keep your stuff squared away where it's halfway decent to where you know where it's at. Uh, I'm a mess, man. And, and uh, I'll tell you a quick little story. Roy will get mad about this. <laughs> when I met Roy, his uh, I, w I was invited to his house. He was living on top of an old farmhouse. <clears throat> and I walked up the stairs, and there was raccoon hides and skunk hides nailed to the wood going up these stairs. And I already, I already knew then I'd like him. Because that's... <laughs> so we went in there, and... He was sitting in the middle of this living room with a, it was some kind of easy chair and there was wood shavings everywhere in his house. There was messes everywhere from him making things. And he was sitting there beading a vest with Indian beads. <laughs> These little bitty beads. And it was a piece of, it was a deer hide that he had tanned himself. And he was putting these beads on there. But he had, in his house, he had them wood shavings from from carving. Uh, he had a leather table where the leather stuff was everywhere. But when you looked at his shoeing truck, it was perfect. It looked like a doctor's office. Everything was in their place. I learned a lot from Roy Bloom from that. He goes, oh, this is just my house, man. He says... My shop is important. That's why it's squared away. <laughs> and I learned a lot from that. My truck, the front of my truck, I, I'm kind of ashamed sometimes. I throw all my <laughs> milk cartons and pop cans on the other side, and it'll, it'll fill right up. Uh, but I try to keep my shop squared away because that, that's where you make your money. I have a lot of pictures from the last time I was here. I can take some more pictures. Just since people are going to listen to this, one of the things, too, are the shoes around here. And we, we were talking about you have the nickel-plated trotter shoes here. Mm -hmm. uh, and these will be, be on the page for this on, on our podcast section. 
uh, I can take pictures of those and put those up. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about what, what you think about when you see those and, and how it compares to what you see today with horseshoeing. Well, when I see them old shoes, and like I told you before, everybody would scratch their head and say, why are they punched so fine? Then I've had guys say, well, they were just showing off they were good with a puller. I, I just don't believe that. I believe that's the way they punched them. And I, I think they domed off feet. I think, it, I think the way they shot horses, and I know I, didn't, I don't read a lot of books, but that one guy, that real old book, and what's his name? Is it Russell? Yeah, William Russell. William Russell. A lot of those pictures of those shoes are punched just like that. Now, I don't know if I've ever seen anything, and like I say, I don't read much. I look at pictures, but I've seen a lot of old pictures of horses' feet that were shod. They'll put that shoe, you know if you punch shoes that fine, you can't set them out to the edge of the wall, because if you do, you'll split the wall when you drive the nail. So you know those shoes had to be tucked underneath that foot to get into the white line. And if you, if you thinned out the wall too much, the nail wouldn't hold, so they had to dome them. They had to do something to keep the thickness and integrity of that wall instead of just rasping it off. It's like one guy told me, and Craig Turnkett told me, and he's correct. You can't rasp your way to integrity because you're losing your integrity every time you're running that rasp over it. But they, they had to dome them. So nowadays we have all full-fit shoes and everything's full-fit. I think maybe something was lost between that era and this era. And uh, I'd like to do a study of uh, shoeing a horse, two or three horses like that, for a year or more and see how their foot holds up. But you you got to understand, too, that 100 years ago, if you had a crummy-footed horse, you, you didn't use it because it was a tool. So, I don't know, maybe we... Uh, bred the crap out of these feet and we don't have good feet no more. I don't know but what it is, but them guys use them horses as a tool so they needed those horses to do everything. It wasn't a pleasure thing. So maybe they knew more than we did about how to fit a foot. I'll probably make a lot of people mad but that's just an idea. I'd like to thank Tom for the entertaining conversation. I'd also like to thank G for sponsoring this episode. If you have any questions or comments on the episode, please post them to this episode page at AmericanFarriers.com slash podcast. To find the gallery of images of Tom's work and within his shop, you can also find those on this podcast episode page. Again, that directory is AmericanFarriers.com slash podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.